The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading this morning is from Mark 3, 17 through 19. And in your pew Bible, that would be on page 838. And out of reverence, please stand with me. Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest, he, lest they crush him. And he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And uh, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanoges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, whom betrayed him. That ends the reading of the word. Please sit down. Well, last week... Pastor Jonathan was in Minneapolis marrying a young couple, and this week he's on vacation. So um, we were blessed last week with the scripture and the message from Brady, and this week we are going to be blessed by fellow elder, John Kleinschmidt, and I just want to pray with you, and then um, we'll let you get after it. Holy Father, just thank you for the way that you have raised up men here in this church, um, godly men who can teach and preach and lead us in the scriptures to understand them, but also to apply them. Lord, just be with John as he proclaims the truth this morning as you have given him, and Lord, let us receive it. Holy Spirit, descend on us all. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Jan, as well. Appreciate that. Uh, So hi, everyone. I'm John Kleinschmidt. For those of you who may not know me, Um, I'm not John Davis. John Davis is thinner, darker hair, better looking. So anyway, you can tell him I said that. It'll probably make him smile. Uh, So as we get in this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Mark. Um, We're preaching through uh, books of the Bible as our norm. So if you're new to Delta, that's what we normally do. Uh, We just feel like God's word is active and sharper um, than any double-edged sword piercing to the heart and marrow. And that in that context, it is Jesus, but the word of God is also speaking to us and changing us. And uh, so we generally go through books of the Bible. So right now we're going through Mark, um, as Tom said. So we're continuing in chapter three today. Brady did an excellent job last week filling in for John and John Davis, our lead teaching pastor. He has been doing a really good job through Mark as well. And I would just encourage you to encourage him um, because I don't know if you know this, but preaching can be a nerve wracking thing, even if you feel called to do it. So uh, words of encouragement go a long way. So I'd really encourage you to do that as uh, the spirit leads you. So a few years ago, I was working in our basement on the breaker box. Um, That does not mean I know what I'm doing for anybody who's thinking, look, that guy's going to help me. That does not mean that at all. But I did turn off the power to most of the rest of the house, which is wise unless you want to die when you're working on a breaker box. But as I was working there, I was wearing my tool belt, um, which I still have a propensity to not put tools in, as my wife would attest. We got it for me so that I wouldn't keep losing things, but then I still just set them down instead of putting them in the belt which causes problems at times. But anyway, so Reed, our second oldest, was there, and he was watching me um, work on the breaker box and do things. And so I stepped down from the stool, and I look over, and there's Reed um, with a carpenter knife open, with a blade out, running his hands up and down it. 
So in that moment, I screamed, no, but much louder than that. Um, basically, I, I felt like I could feel the house shake for as loud as I yelled. Um, and to this day, I, uh, it's a miracle of God that his hand wasn't cut to shreds because I can still picture his hand sliding up and down it and nothing. There was nothing on his hand. There was no wound. There was no nothing. Um, but the reason I say all that is because context is king. So if you would have been stopping by momentarily and dropping something off upstairs and you heard this gigantic scream from downstairs of no, um, or maybe if you were the neighbor um, who moved in next door and you heard this huge no, like you could have been thinking, man, what a horrible dad. Man, he's got anger problems. Wow, he snapped. What is going on in that house? Um, because you wouldn't have known the whole story. So as we get into the text today, um, we need to understand a few things to help us really get the context of the whole story. The first thing we have to understand is the humanity of Jesus Christ. The second is we have to understand what's transpired thus far that Mark has communicated to us. So first, the humanity of Jesus. So the Bible is explicitly clear. Jesus was the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. So sometimes we can mysticize Jesus and make him something that he's not. We can almost elevate one or the other, but he says he's both according to the scriptures. So Hebrews would say it this way, chapter 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, this is Jesus, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was just like us in our humanity. Anybody in here weak at times? Yeah, Jesus has felt that. Anybody suffer at times? Jesus has felt that but he did it without sin. So Jesus um, got tired, John 4. Jesus was sad, John 11. Jesus got angry, John chapter 2. Jesus felt pain and betrayal, John 19. Jesus felt stress, Matthew 26. He did it all, and he felt it, truly, literally felt it, and he did not sin. So the first thing we have to know and see is the reality, the humanity of Jesus Christ, to understand our text. The second is what's transpired thus far in Mark. So uh, I'm trying to recap one through three, six. We're just going to read it all. It's a joke. We're not going to read it all, but I'm going to try to high level it for you, okay? So Jesus shows up on the scene, and he comes, and he's proclaiming the gospel. Okay, he says, the kingdom of God is here, and he says, repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel, as he's going to proclaim, it's just the king is back. Jesus is here to reclaim what has been taken over by the thieves, by the people. He's here to take back and to show the reality of his kingdom and his kingship. He is coming to make a way for people to be connected back to God, which eventually will be through his life and his death that is substitutionary. And then he will raise again on the third day and ascend back to the Father to create a doorway back to get back to God. But he comes and he's saying, hey, return to the king. Repent from all the other things that you've been following. Repent from all the other things you've been trying. And return to God. There's something better here. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news of what I'm proclaiming and about to do. Believe it. Repent. Turn from where you're coming. Come back to me. Come to me. We see Jesus heal and deliver. We see him preach. We see him be surrounded in this first part through Mark so far. One time, so much so that he's in a house, no one can get near to it, so they dig through the ceiling to get somebody to him. In another occasion, Jesus is there, and he's got a whole city coming to him, asking him to do things for them to help them. He is just swamped with people. I feel overwhelmed by our four children sometimes. I don't know what I'd do with a whole city coming to me looking for stuff. Jesus is there, and he's accused of not being pious enough when it comes to his view of fasting. Jesus heals a leper, and he says, hey, 
go honor God, follow, follow the, the ceremonial laws of the day to praise God for this, but don't tell people I did it. Just go praise God. He didn't listen, um, which I don't know if I would have either. So disobedience coming out right there with Jesus. But he didn't listen, and he starts telling everybody about Jesus, but it became a problem because then it started hindering his desire to go from town to town to preach the gospel, which is why he came on Mark 1. But now people were just bombarding him before he ever got to the town. So he couldn't just go from one to the other. Jesus. Jesus is accused of blasphemy, of not respecting God, a huge, grievous sin worthy of death because he forgave someone. Jesus is, is, uh, is said to be embracing sin because he embraced sinners. He's accused of breaking the law of Moses, God's law in regards to the Sabbath. Jesus is about to have a plan, we'll see in verse 6, that comes into verse 7, hatched to kill him. He's had John the Baptist, his friend, get arrested. And Jesus is about to have his earthly family accuse him publicly of being crazy. And then, and then the religious leaders are going to say, hey, and he's doing all these things by the prince of Beelzebul. Basically, he's demonic. Okay, so I don't know what your last week has been like or last six months. Um, or what pressure you may have been through, or what people may have come for you for, but I'm here to tell you that's overwhelming. What Jesus has been through is overwhelming. He's feeling an insurmountable amount of pressure in his humanity as the God-man. And that leads us into our text today, because the main point of our text today is twofold. One is that Jesus feels pressure in the ministry. Jesus feels pressure in the ministry. The second thing we're going to see is that Jesus responds to the pressure, okay? Jesus feels pressure in the ministry, and he responds to the pressure. So 7 through 12 is going to be where we start off. And you're going to see in the text the pressure comes from two sources, the people and the demonic. The people and the demonic. Okay, read along with me if you have your Bible open. 7 through 10 is what we're going to read right now. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and Idiom, and from beyond the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon, when great crowds heard of all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, to touch him. So the first thing we see is the people. So in the text, it shows that there are people following from all these regions, likely thousands of them. Some commentators would say up to 10,000 people are coming to Jesus where he's at. And the thing is here, they're jostling for position. That term pressed in verse 8 is really this idea of, uh, or verse 9 is jostle, fall down upon, yank at, tug, pull. They're basically mauling him in this text. And they're doing it so much so that Jesus says, take the boat, put it out from shore a little bit, because I may have to retreat lest they crush me. This is not a pretty moment. Um, this is not a pretty moment. In our Western society, sometimes we think popularity is beautiful and wonderful and so cool. Um, our oldest son, he's right here, right? So I'm looking at him now. Hey, thanks for waving, Will. Um, he, he would love to be like a star athlete. He was talking about how cool it would be like Usain Bolt to sell all these records. But we also talk about the reality of what popularity brings good and bad, right? So this is not beautiful. This is chaos. This is pure, unadulterated chaos. They are just yelling and screaming and pulling and yanking at Jesus. Like, I don't know if you, have you guys ever seen like Walmart pictures or videos on Black Friday? Yikes, right? Some of you guys have been there. I hope I didn't see you on video, but yeah. So, like, it's overwhelming with some of those videos, right? Or back in 2008 when the people had to get in so bad to get their merchandise that they crushed a man underneath the door that it fell on him, and they kept trampling him. And then the team members within Walmart that tried to help him couldn't get there because they were getting trampled. So he died. In this text is unadulterated chaos. We pretty it up sometimes because, man, look at all the people. But Jesus is overwhelmed in the pressure of the time, in the ministry. 
And in the midst of it all, while he's being swamped, you have demons crying out, you are the Son of God. And they're just falling down all around him. So you have people yelling, help me, Jesus. My mom, Jesus. My daughter, Jesus. My back, Jesus. Hey, my turn. And then you have, you are the Son of God, as they fall down around him when they see him. And that leads us to the second point of pressure in the text, and that would be the demonic, verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Not to make him known. Now, this isn't the demons trying to give Jesus some props, okay? We just need to make that very clear. Um, They're not pro-Jesus. Just tell you right now, James 2 says that they know about Jesus, but they do not love Jesus. So their attempt here is not to create some sort of props. Like, we should know this about the demonic or about Satan. They can say true things, but the motive is always perverse. It's always bad. Satan would tell you a hundred truths if he can trick you on that 101st, right? We saw that with Jesus in the 40 days of being out in the desert. Satan is quoting true scriptures, but his heart motive behind it all was to deceive, was the trick. Some would say that right now the, demo- the, the, the demons here are also trying to establish rule over Jesus by saying you are the son of God using his proper name. Well, Jesus has nothing to do with it. Like you don't walk up to the son of God and say, listen, bow to me. He's like, eh, be quiet. And he ordered them to be silent and not to make him, not to make him known. The demonic's goal here is to create as much chaos as humanly possible. Jesus probably can't even hear himself think. Trying to proclaim the gospel he came to do, overwhelmed with people that don't care about the gospel but care about getting what they need, he's still trying to love them while the demonics are screaming out around him as soon as they see him. You're the son of God. You're the son of God. It's just chaotic. Why did he command them to not make him known? One, just to show his authority. It would be one, right? Just to be like, no, not happening. Um, Another I would put before you is he was not looking for their evil witness. Um, Anybody ever had to do a reference letter or have a reference letter written about him? Yeah. So I took some, uh, I had to apply to seminary after college to take some seminary classes, and I had to have people write reference letters about me uh, to attest to my character. Um, But the whole point, I think, is if you had in, let's say, the early 1940s and you were applying somewhere, you needed a reference letter, and it could be the most glowing, outstanding reference letter, beautiful, articulate, true, but if at the end it said dot, 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 Adolf Hitler, eh, no matter the truth, no matter the truth contained in that reference, it's discounted purely because of the source. So no matter what truth they're saying, Jesus is not looking for them to be the ones that proclaim. He's not looking for it because it's evil. The source is bad. The source is bad. Uh, Second reason I would say that he's doing it is to, uh, Jesus is not looking for popularity or a show. Popularity actually distracts at times from the true message. Like we see that with celebrities, right? If somebody popular is walking through here right now, all of us may be like, hey, I want to sign this. Who are you? Take a picture. And we may not know what they believe, where they're, where they're at on a ton of issues. We may not even like where they're at, but we'll still be drawn to get a picture with them because they're popular. Sometimes popularity distracts from the actual message. Uh, years ago in college, uh, the church we were at, they were taking the youth group to a concert down in St. Louis. And they needed some security for the Christian concert. The college guys, right? Okay, it was a free, it was a free way to get into a concert. That's the way I saw it, so I went. Um, so who it was playing was for David Crowder. Now, I didn't know anything about David Crowder at that time. Um, we did like one song at church uh, from him, but I didn't know anything about his real beliefs, where it's at, and to be honest with you, in our cultural world of Christianity, there's some cuckoos out there. It's just the nicest way I'll say it. So you really should know. But anyway, I didn't know, and I'm not saying David Crowder is. I'm just saying that I didn't know. So we're there, and we sang a song by him this morning, so I'm really not saying that. I should be very, very clear. Um, but I didn't know anything about David Crowder, but I knew that everyone else really liked him. Everyone else really liked him. So behind, uh, in the backstage, right, I see David Crowder. I'm like, hey, David, how are you? Can we take a picture? 
can sign this? I mean, I have no idea about anything about the man besides we do one song from him, but everyone else liked him. So the popularity was distracting me from even caring about what he was about, what he wasn't about. All I knew is he was popular, and that's cool to be a part of it, to be a part of it. But it distracted me from hearing his message, distracted from hearing his message. See, in verse 8, it says the people were coming to Jesus because they'd heard what he was doing, not because they heard his message. Jesus silences the demons because the goal was not to have people be impressed with his power over the demons if that impressiveness hindered them from hearing the message. Get right, like the signs that Jesus does were there to validate the message, not overshadow it. God does not do things for the intent of let's be cool and be more humanly popular if it's hindering from people hearing the message and believe in the gospel. He's not on Facebook looking for likes. He's God. Jesus is being pressed on every side in this moment. And the God man feels it. And I, I want you to get this. Like he literally feels it. He literally feels it. So I wrote it down this way. Jesus is trying to be obedient to all the fathers called him to in the mission and to serve and love the people before him in the mission. And he's overwhelmed in it. But the thing is, like, that's not distant from us, right? Jesus feels pressure in ministry. Most of us aren't in what we call full-time ministry. We're not going around preaching and teaching. Most of us aren't, at least not in getting paid for it. But, see, Jesus is not distant from us. Keith, because here's the thing. Like, where in your life do you feel pressure or are you overwhelmed with what God's called you to? Where in your life, for the mission that God's put you on, whether it's to share the gospel, to lead your home, respect your husband, shepherd your children, where in your life are you overwhelmed and just can't handle it? Expecting one more shoe to drop. The more good you seek to do, the less good that seems to happen. Where in your life do you feel pressure as you seek to obey God and what he's called you to? Jesus has been there. See, this is not just some distance from it. If we love Jesus, we experience things similarly. It does happen in ministry. It does happen. Like I can tell you as a pastor of this church um, over the last several years, there are times where um, we may be up at night stressed over somebody in the church and care for them because either decisions they're making or the things happening to them, right? There's, there can be that. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians says that he has anxiety for all of the churches because he wants them to be healthy and it's hard to see what's going on within them because he cares. So it's true, it does happen within ministry. But the thing is, pressure of the mission, it happens in marriages, it happens in parenting, it happens in jobs, and it happens anytime we're seeking to serve others and love them. So some of you may really have pressure when it comes to loving family members. It's the people God's put in front of you to love and it's super hard. Serving God's people in any capacity or serving on God's mission will create pressure. And you should know this. That pressure may come from people. That pressure may come from the demonic. But pressure will come. Um, Kyle Edmiston and Jill Edmiston in the house uh, that they used to live in, they had a neighbor, um, and I asked if I could share this, and he said yes. Uh, they had a neighbor who asked for rides, for money, and they were trying to figure out how do we love this person who's in our sphere that we're to serve and to love, like Jesus loved them. How do we do that? So they gave money to her, and then she started sending her children to them to get more money, right? And then it creates pressure. What, what do we do now? How do we love her still? How do we really evidence Jesus? Do we keep giving? Do we stop? How do we do this? It creates pressure in that moment to discern how do we act. Or Paul in the New Testament, over and over again, uh, he had times where he would say the enemy was hindering him from going into different regions. He's trying to be obedient to the mission that God has given him, right? 
It'd be the same thing if you're saying, I'm trying to be obedient to raise my children and discipline and instruction of the Lord, and it seems like every time it just goes bad, it goes hard. There's the mission. Paul's going, and sometimes demonic things get in the way and hinder it. And that can be true for us, too. There is a spiritual dimension that's well beyond us, and we need to see that as Christians. Sometimes we negate it. We can't do so. We can't inflate it, but we can't negate it. Jesus was pressured in the ministry and the mission. We're pressured, if we love Jesus, in the ministry and the mission. How do you respond? First, let's see how Jesus responded. That's going to be verses 13 through 19. Jesus responds to the pressure and the ministry, and he's going to respond in four ways, in four ways. First, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain. Stop. And he went up on the mountain. First thing he did at whatever point in the midst of the chaos, whatever point when he was either tapped and tired, I don't know, whatever point, he got away. He got away, he had physical activity, and he went up on the mountain. Luke 6, a parallel passage, um, which just means it's the same account from a different angle. Uh, Luke 6 says that he was up there all night long. So the first thing he does is he gets away and isolates himself and he goes up on the mountain. The second thing he does we see from Luke 6 that we don't see explicitly in this text is he prays. He prays. And he prays all night long. If you love Jesus, you need to hear this. The greatest fuel when we are tired of doing good. Anybody ever get tired of doing good? I'll do two hands. <laughs> yeah. The greatest fuel when we're tired of doing good, we're the greatest fuel when we're tired of being obedient, when we're the greatest fuel when we don't want to do or pray or serve or give or share the gospel, the greatest fuel in that moment when we feel the pressure of life is prayer. It's prayer. We're tired of being obedient. We're tired of doing good. We're tired of serving. The greatest fuel is prayer. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, no, made known to God, and he will give you peace beyond understanding. The greatest fuel when we feel that pressure is prayer. So Jesus response to the pressure in ministry, the response to the pressure of the people and the mission and the demonic is he gets away and he prays. He didn't go to Facebook. He didn't go to the next TV show. Some of you smile when I said Facebook. Yeah, he didn't try to numb himself. He knew that this pressure inside was to lead to prayer and isolation. So earlier this week, right, like I'm preparing for the sermon and on one night I'm just feeling this pressure of like, I don't know. I just feel this pressure to do well and whatever that means, but not make it about me. And uh, like, I got to work on it, but what am I going to work on? And welcome to sermon prep. Um, so you feel the pressure in that moment. And here's my gut response. I want a really big piece of coffee cake. And I want to watch a show called Chasing November, which is a deer hunting show, which you all are going to think is totally stupid. And I completely know that, but that's just the honest truth. That's what I wanted to do, was go and watch that and have some coffee cake. So like any good Christian, especially when you're preaching through a text like this, you eat the coffee cake, because I was hungry, and then I went by myself and prayed, okay? But my, my initial gut wasn't, hey, this pressure is created to push me to the Father. My initial gut was, this pressure is created. I need something to fix it, take it away, relieve it. And my gut response wasn't, Go to God. My gut response was, get away from it some other way other than God. Jesus feels the pressure in his first two responses. His first, he isolates himself, and two, he goes and prays all night long. His third response, it's going to be in verse 14. His third response to the pressure in ministry is that he forms a close-knit community around him. He invites people into his world in a specific way. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Stop. His third response is that he invites 12 men into a unique relationship with him. His third response to the pressure he's been feeling and his night of prayer is he invites 12 into a unique, 
close-knit relationship with him. It's likely out of maybe the 72 or the 100. It seems like there's a, a, uh, a smaller group other than the large crowd that somehow is around the mountain. And after he's done, he comes out and he calls out these 12. So he invites them into a unique relationship. And, and the number 12 is important because it's significant because it's showing that he's formed a new community. A new community, because if, if you'd have known that in Israel's day, there's 12 tribes of Israel. So he calls out 12, showing that there's a new community being formed. It's a new Israel, if you will. It's the church. And he's calling them out to be with him. Right? Verse 14. And so that they might be with him. They're going to be with Jesus in a unique way. And we're going to see that three of them have even an even more unique relationship with Jesus. See, in Genesis 1, it says there's only one thing not good. What is it? You can actually answer if you want. If you're wrong, I'll just go, eh. Okay, maybe that's too much pressure. Let's not do that. Okay, there's only one thing not good, and that was for Adam to be alone. See, God has made us for relationship. He's made us for fellowship, that none of us are destined to do ministry in life alone. Jesus is modeling this in his humanity as the God-man as he invites 12 with him. And can I tell you guys something? Do not negate the ministry of presence. Some of you people, I didn't mean that accusatorily, some of you may struggle to have relationships because you don't know what value you bring. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 7 shows that Paul was refreshed purely by people coming and being with him in the mission God had called them to. Some of you are going to have times where it's going to be super hard to be obedient and to do whatever it is. You may lose earthly family over sharing the gospel or something, and sometimes you need somebody to just be with you. Never negate the ministry of presence. Sometimes we just need people with us. We don't always need wisdom, but we do need community. So his third response is that he forms a close-knit community, signifying there's a new community happening around him. Fourth response is that his fourth response to the pressure is that Jesus shares the burden, he shares the mission. Okay, verse 14 again, and then 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So he shares the mission. He shares the burden. He shares the load. That's his next response. He doesn't have to do it all in that moment. He's involving humanity. See, God's plan from creation was to involve humanity in his work on the earth to his glory and their joy. If you go back and read Genesis, you'll see that Adam was to walk with God, right, daily in the garden, be with God, but also work, be sent by God to cultivate the land. This is before the fall, to make the rest of the earth look like Eden. God's plan all along was to involve humanity in the mission. All along. So like how that impacts us as a church, like we have a team of elders because it's not just because it's not one person here that's supposed to do everything, but we have a team of five pastors, partly because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. Well, mainly that's why. The Bible teaches it, but also we see the beauty of it because it shares the load, shares the mission in regards to the shepherd and the church. That's why we're so big on doing our best to form community or equip leaders, even if we're not the best at it. We're trying because we know that it's supposed to share the mission, share the load. It's not supposed to just be John Davis, go share the gospel. Or Tom Cheshire, love people. Or Bob, pray for people. It's not supposed to be a one-man show. If we love Jesus, we are a part of God's design to partake in the mission before us. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. God continues with this. Uh, two, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says it this way. And what, have you, and, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Hey, Timothy, it's not all on you, bro. If you've read 2 Timothy, Timothy's getting crushed, right? He's overwhelmed. It's not all on you. 
It's not all on you. Your part is to give it to others. Let them share in the mission with you. That's God's design. It's good and right. It's called discipleship, but it's good and right. It's the way he's supposed to be. And he, so Jesus equips the 12 to go out and do what he's doing, kingdom work. And he calls them apostles because he's going to send them out. So the term apostle just means sent one. Sent one. Okay, can you guys say sent one? That was pretty good. All right, so yeah, sent one. That's all, that's all it really means. Now, there's a delineation we're going to make really quick, and then we're going to go on because it's not the point. Um, so in the New Testament, it calls out the gift of apostle. Um, now, the gift of apostle in the New Testament is distinctly different than the office of apostle of these guys, okay? The gift of apostle we see a few times in the New Testament. It's the sent one, pioneer missionary, someone God's given a gift to be able to go into different regions and do certain things um, in a way that is unique and is, is by God's just design, Right? But the office of apostle is those who saw Jesus face to face, write scripture, people walk through their shadow, they get healed. According to Ephesians 2, them and the prophets are the foundation for the church and Jesus is the cornerstone. So let me just tell you, that office is closed, okay? There's no more scripture writers, no more face to face. I totally believe that God heals. God can do whatever he wants to further and advance his the gospel, whether that's resurrecting people, so on and so forth, he can do it. That's up to him. I, I totally believe that, but um, you just need to know the distinction so that if you honestly hear people using the term that they're an apostle, just we want to see how they define that. Um, but that's a whole side note because that's not the point. The point here um, is not their title. He's trying, remember, he's trying to show us this new community what it's going to be like. The 12 are a foreshadow of the church. The foreshadow of the church. They were called out. And in the Greek, the term church can also be translated um, the called out ones. So he's trying to show that these 12 are going to be a picture of what this new community looks like. They're going to be with Jesus and then they're going to be sent by Jesus. And that's what's going to make a Christian. 1 Corinthians 12 says that, that those who love Jesus are the body of Christ, that we're his physical representation Physical representation on the earth. We talked about 1 Corinthians 12 last week in our community group, and then somebody said they didn't want to be the foot because it talks about the parts of the body. It was Brittany, I think. She's like, I just don't want to be the foot. I don't know why, but that's okay. So the reality is that we're, we're to be the physical representation of Jesus on the earth, the church, the body of Christ, the call that one. Colossians 1.27 says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you love Jesus, Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, so you are with Jesus. It's a mark of the new community. You're with Jesus. John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater, work than these, greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. That anyone who believes in Jesus will be modeling Jesus and reflecting Jesus out in the world. They'll be doing the works of Jesus and even greater works. Now, I don't think that, honestly, I don't believe what John's trying to communicate is greater works as in there's going to be people that just do, everybody's got to resurrect or you're not a legitimate Christian if you don't resurrect one person in your life. What he's talking about is the concept that Jesus is one man on the earth, right? He's one man on the earth and he's got 10,000 people as he's being obedient. So what happens when there's 10,000 people that love Jesus and they touch 100, now it's a million. The scope of the work is greater. Some of that work may be healing. Some of that work may be people getting resurrected from the dead. Some of that work might be serving your neighbor, just proclaiming the gospel, might be forgiving someone. But people will experience Jesus in a profound, greater way when it's spread across the earth, so much so that we see that it changes society in many regions. 2 Corinthians 15, 19 and 20. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If we love Jesus, we are ambassadors. We are sent ones from a kingdom above to earth. And we've been sent to our schools, to our neighborhoods, to our kids, to our family, to our friends, to our job. 
And we're there to bear witness to the reality of what Jesus has done to us and bear witness to the reality of the gospel as we serve those around us. As we proclaim, turn to King Jesus. Jesus has a better way for your life. Jesus is offering forgiveness for that sin that's wrecking your marriage. Jesus offers a better way from you ruling and reigning over yourself. Jesus offers a way for you to be connected back to God through his sacrifice. He's got a better way to lead your family. He's got a better way for you to submit at work. He's got a better way to take that pressure off of you. He can help. We are sent ones. If we love Jesus, we are ambassadors. Um, God's salvation is purposeful. The point of the 12 and the apostle isn't to confuse us about their title and office compared to us. It's to show us they're a foreshadow. They're a foreshadow of what the church is really going to look like, of being people that are with Jesus and sent by Jesus. Christians are not those who believe certain things, but rather they're those who trust Jesus, are with Jesus, and do what Jesus does, which evidences their true belief in the gospel. First John says it this way, He is the propitiation for our sins, that is Jesus, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus responds to the pressure of the ministry and the mission. He got alone. He prayed. He got into community and invited others in. And he shared the load. And he shared the mission. So as we close, if you love Jesus, how are you responding to the pressure in your life? How are you responding to the pressure in your life? So are you overwhelmed? Do you feel pressured by others or the enemy? Maybe you just have thoughts that aren't the best that just keep attacking you. Do you feel pressure when it comes to serving those around you? Do you feel pressure when it comes to being obedient to God's word? Do you feel pressure when it comes to sharing the gospel? Are you wary of doing good? If you are, like, here's what I'd say. I would encourage you today um, to get prayer. I'll be in the back. Um, but you can get somebody else to, but I would really encourage you to get prayer. Matthew 26, Jesus feels the stress of the cross coming, and in his humanity, he asked his friends to pray with him. Now, they fell asleep. I'll do, my, I'll do my best not to fall asleep on you, okay? But literally, get prayer. That's the thing that I'm not sure for us as a church, that's the, I don't think it's our strong suit, necessarily, but one of the things I'd really encourage you on Sundays, get prayer. Get prayer. Response of prayer is a really good and right one. Maybe it's just not how we're wired. Maybe it's because we don't see the need. I don't know. But I'd really encourage you, get prayer. It's the fuel. It's the fuel that God uses. Um, Number two, where's your mountain? Where do you get away to be in silence and pray? First, you may need to know what's your gut response whenever pressure comes. And I'm not saying you have to pray all night. It may be a minute but don't negate God out of it. How do you get away? How do you pray? Um, For me personally, um, it can be running. It can be quiet mornings. Um, It can be quiet nights. I don't know if anybody's had this before. Anybody wake up at like 2 a.m. feeling the pressure and overwhelmed by anything? Great. Three of you. You guys are awesome. All right, for us three, here's God's design in that moment. He's creating a mountain moment for us. He's allowed us to be waken up, which could come from any oppression of any kind or just our own flesh. But God's made it so that we can engage him in that moment. Some of my best prayer times has been 3 a.m. with tears, praying and asking God to help me through whatever I'm stressed out and overwhelmed about. God creates mountain moments. Don't negate it and just go do whatever to get your mind off of it. God might be calling you, get close to me. Uh, my best place to get away is across a creek, up a little hill, through the woods, and up in a tree stand. Yeah, you're right. You're welcome. Some of you hate me now. That's okay. Um, 
But that's my best way. Like hours outdoors seeing God's creation. Man, that can be the best just time with God. It's amazing for me. But you need to know where your mountain is. You need to know how you can get away. And you need to know that's what God's trying to call you to. Um, number three, who are your 12? Who are your 12? Who can you share your burdens and struggles with? Who can you invite into your life when you're seeking to obey and you're struggling? Maybe you're struggling to lead your home. Maybe you don't know how to love your wife like Christ loved the church today. Maybe you don't know how to instruct your children. Maybe you don't know how to respect your husband. You just feel overwhelmed. This is what God's called me to. I don't even know how to love my family right now. This is love my enemies. I don't know how to do that. Invite people in, but who are your 12? Who have you invited in? Who have you invited in? I have, uh, I have 12, you know, here. I haven't actually counted the number, but there's several men and my wife um, who are my 12, right? Where they know what's going on and they partake in the mission that God has called me to, according to the scriptures, and help fight for me to be obedient along those lines. So who are your 12? And if you don't know where to start, this is my, this is, this is for free. Look who's around you as a start. Like, who, look who's around you that you can trust. Um, Kyle Edmondson's is one of my 12 because one of the simplest things is we work together, right? So it's really easy. Um, he's a man of integrity and I can trust him and trust his counsel and he'll pray for me, but we work together. So it's real simple to draw that in and just be like, hey man, you got 10 minutes to walk. Here's what I'm going through. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's the hardness of the day. Here's how I don't want to say this in this way. Help me. I know it can be scary, and some of you walk in perpetual unknownness. Please don't. God has a better way for you. Repent of your individualism. Believe the gospel that brings unity and invite people in. Um, only two more. Why do you want Jesus? 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 If I kept doing that, it's going to be annoying. But anyway, why do you want Jesus? That's the next one. All the people came because they wanted something from Jesus. And there's a great warning in the 12. You know what that warning is? Judas Iscariot. Judas is a part of the 12. He likely would have been sitting out in pews up here, like us, maybe even sitting up front. He'd have saw all these great acts. He'd heard all these teachings and all this power. But ultimately, we could see that his heart wasn't solely for Jesus. We see in the book of John that he gets mad at Jesus for not selling this perfume because he really wanted money to take out of the money bag. And he really wanted that money, and Jesus wouldn't let him sell the perfume. He's like, no, this is a greater honor. He gets mad about that, and what do we see happen Next, he goes and he sells Jesus. So you need to know, why do you want Jesus? It'd be ignorant for me to think that there's somebody in here that isn't wanting Jesus for something other than Jesus. Help me do give. Those are opposite the gospel. And last but not least is, I don't know where you guys are all at. I don't know. Some of you have walked with Jesus for years. Some of you maybe just be checking it out. Some of you may have been forced to come here this morning. Thank you for putting up with me. Much appreciated. Um, but here's the thing. The invitation of the gospel is open to all of us. God loves you. Some of you don't feel desired or cared for. Some of you struggle with the reality that God cares for you. Some of you feel pressure at whatever stage of the life, whether it's little or big, old or young, there's pressures. And Jesus wants to help and meet you in your pressure. But it starts by meeting him, by repenting of your sin, embracing the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to pay the penalty for sin. Through his cross and resurrection, you embrace him. And in that, you receive the spirit, the great helper to change your life. So I don't know where you're at. My encouragement to you is you feel a tug on your heart. You're like, man, I don't even know what this, is, this tug is. Maybe I've told people I'm a Christian for 10 years, but right now I feel this tug. Like, I don't know. Respond to the tug. The Holy Spirit's grace is given for today. Don't bank on it coming for tomorrow. If you, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Anyway. 
I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're overwhelmed, if you need to have a mountain, a moment where you need to just get alone and pray. Honestly, there's a hallway out here. Um, you can just get alone and pray up front. You can do that right, right there. Just be silent and pray. Um, I don't know if that's what you need. I don't know if you need your, to get your 12. Um, ask somebody to go to coffee. Start there. You don't have to divulge your whole life to them unless you want to, but it might be awkward. Um, I don't know if you're in the process why you want Jesus, or I don't know if you're processing, is Jesus even real? But wherever you are, I ask you to respond. I'll be in the back if I can help. I would love to pray for you or talk with you. God loves you and he cares for you. Be built up. He's trying to help us see how to deal with the pressures of our life and invite Jesus and others into it. Don't negate that. Don't negate it. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, would you, um, would you speak to us? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Anyone here who does not know you, Lord, anyone here who is seeking to deal with the realities of life on their own or maybe through religious means, God, would you grant them faith and love for you? And through the Holy Spirit, would they be connected back to you? Would they embrace King Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross? Would they embrace his lordship and his power that if he can change a leper, if he can change a Paul, if he can change a John Kleinschmidt, how can he change all of us? So God, I don't know where people are at, but you do. God, would you give them faith? God, would you just blast our hearts where we're looking for human popularity? Blast our hearts, God, um, and encourage us when we may be overwhelmed by people or the demonic or by our own flesh. Father, would you just blast our hearts with the surety of your greatness? Would you help us not run from you but to you when pressure comes? God, not a gift of prayer be seen as a burden, but as a gift. God, in whatever we need encouraged, encourage us. Wherever we need convicted, convict us. But let us not walk out of here with our heads down, but let, our, let us walk out of here with our heads to our Savior and from being near to Jesus. Let us not walk out of here alone, but let us be overwhelmed. We're a part of the mission, but we're not alone in the mission. God, for the glory of your name, do these things. We bind the enemy from the rest of our afternoons, and we pray that you would haunt us rather than we be haunted by the next show or the next time we get to just relax. Let us be haunted by your word and let us see it's a gift. God, we need you in your name. Amen.